on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg, and some of the things I say on the podcast may not represent the views of my employer. Hey, Sally, we're still sort of, we're not in lockdown because we're in Melbourne, but we're still socially distanced because we uh, have to be in different places. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. Well, I think I'm okay, but I have started collecting all the free wood I can find on Facebook Marketplace so that I can build like an artisanal cat enclosure in my backyard, which my best friend pointed out was the gayest thing she's ever heard. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And then I look out into the back garden and there's just like all this scrap wood and old carpet because I have a vision for my cats. So, you know, you can all make up your own minds about how I'm doing. (laughs) How are you, Francis? Yeah, I'm not building a cat bomb shelter, so I must be doing okay. Look, I am a sports fan, so I'm allowing myself to be distracted by the Olympic Games, even though I know it's a sort of, you know, a mirage of our times. And when it dissipates and all the competition disappears, we'll be back where we are sort of dragging the chain at the bottom of the of the pack in the vaccine rollout race. But I have been, you know, I have been enjoying it, I've got to say. Uh, some great racing, some pure racing. And yeah, look, the swimming pool, <laughs> I'm loving the racing in the swimming pool. I'm just loving it. Pure racing, just, you know, you, me, let's go. End to end. So that stuff's been great. Mate, you sound like someone who hates the Olympics and has never watched the Olympics. Like your analysis just then of the Olympics was like, yeah, you know, all the races. I love the racing in the pool. Like, mate, just own up. You've never seen the Olympics. <laughs> I'm loving it. It is a distraction. And I am feeling for everyone still in Sydney and elsewhere who are in lockdown at the moment. Yeah, it's tough. It's really, really tough. And you get a sense that they're chasing their tail a little bit in terms of trying to get the Delta variant under control. Um, the government's approach to providing more money for those who are in lockdown is it's very, very late to the party and it took, the once again, the union movement and others to keep banging on that door to drag the government to do what it needed to do. But it's still with, with the emergency payment doesn't provide what JobKeeper did, which is linking workers to their employers and keeping that link alive. And that is so important for people's continuity and sense of security because they know that at some point on the other side of whichever lockdown they're in, there is a link to their job and they can feel that they've got a future that they can rely on. This doesn't provide that. And look, the government will make up whatever reasons it can around why it doesn't want to do that and doesn't want to set a precedent for that. But it's an opportunity missed again. And I'm just thinking about everybody who is in that situation. And we know that the great insecure work economy that exists in the suburbs of Sydney and elsewhere around the country as well is is always just one step away from an economic crisis if something goes wrong. And this has pulled the curtain back on that really quite starkly. And, you know, beyond the uh, bells and whistles of the games, that's where my head is at when I look at what's going on in the wider world, Sally. It's really devastating. And I I, I don't know, I don't want to be too indulgent with how I feel about Sydney because I'm not in Sydney. Yeah, it's, just, it's devastating, you know, seeing a group of people go through what we in Melbourne had to go through last year and, um, and you know, other parts of Australia to lesser extent and all across the world. It's just like every time it happens, it's like upsetting on the face of it because of the suffering and the sickness and the job losses. And then there's, for me, 
that is underpinned by this like white hot rage that we haven't we being Australia hasn't fixed the problems like it really seems like the New South Wales state government and the federal government both haven't actually taken any of the mistakes that we made here in Victoria and the lessons gleaned from that and applied them to Sydney. And so I don't want to speak for people in Sydney, but I can imagine that in lockdown last year, it was sort of underpinned by a sense of like duty and camaraderie through adversity and like fear and optimism. Whereas this time around, I can't see how it can be underpinned by anything other than anger and frustration. So that's where we're at. And, and let's hope that somehow the vaccine rate picks up and we get to a point as a community where we can feel confident that we can open up more without the consequence of the Delta variant being really catastrophic for the wider community. So that's that's a long way off, but um, that's a conversation for another day. But yeah, we're still very much with you. We know what you're going through and uh, you have our solidarity, our, our solidarity and our thoughts. Hey, just on this week's guest and this week's uh, podcast, what did you make of Jeff Bezos? when he flew off into space on his enormous rocket penis a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> in the week of billionaire spaceflight with Richard Branson in his little spaceship and Bezos has got a spaceship and Elon Musk has got a spaceship and, you know, forget the super yacht. You've got to have a spaceship now if you're going to be a serious billionaire. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Jeff Bezos. It was one of the billionaires and I think it was Jeff made a comment last week to the effect of like, well, we've got to move polluting industries and like dirty resourcing we've we've got to move it to outer space to protect the earth and it's just like how extreme do we have to get to say like we should stop burning fossil fuels or like you know like we we should stop cutting down trees and it's like no <laughs> let's build a rocket and move it to space yeah it's complete it's bananas it's sort of like i wonder if a couple of years ago Things like this would have shocked us on a large scale, whereas nowadays it's just sort of like, oh, okay, we live in our dystopian future. We're here. <laughs> you we know? are the Truman Show of our worst fears. Yeah, just sort of like, you know, every time you turn on the TV, it's like, oh, cool, the Amazon is burnt down. And I don't mean Jeff Bezos' Amazon. <laughs> It is the times in which we live, but it is that thing, isn't it, where the cognitive dissonance here is that in the middle of a pandemic when people are struggling and the uncertainty in the world is enormous, contrast that with billionaires flying off into space because they've got more money than God and can do it. That's what really sharpens your focus on the inequality and the disparity in all of this. And it makes you wonder how the hell these people got so incredibly wealthy and powerful. And that's what we're talking about today with Alex Press. Now, Alex is a journalist and writer and podcaster. And I came across her writing in her podcast, which is called Primer. Check it out. Go to your podcast platform, check it out. And it is focused purely on what is called the Amazon universe. And it is a universe because it's not just a company. And in the more recent podcast, she talked about how Amazon is going to become the largest private employer in the United States within the next six months. That's how big it is. And that's just in the US. Wow. Yeah. The biggest private employer in the United States in the next six months. And it's growing exponentially. It's becoming 
the company for all people and all things. And internationally, this is what's happening too. It's happening in Australia. And her podcast looks at the Amazon universe from all angles, but particularly from a worker point of view and how it's changing the culture of work, the impact it's having on people, uh, the the sort of dystopian work practices we've talked about in the past, and how workers are trying to organise around protecting their, you know, the basic stuff like their dignity (laughs) of a start as human beings, even before they get to wages and paying condition, all of that stuff. It's a fascinating podcast. And we've got Alex on this week's pod to talk to us. So it's a co-pod. I think that's what they call it. Or as the kids would say, Sally, a collab. Oh, yeah, collab. Two pods in a pea. I don't know. So here is the host of Primer, Alex Press, on the job. Alex, welcome to On the Job. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with Jeff Bezos. Because at the centre of this universe, the Amazon universe, he sits like this sun god. What do we know about him and his politics and, and the philosophy that underpins this this beast? That's a great question. I think Bezos is a sort of understudied character given how much influence he has. You know, like Musk has a real cult of personality around him. You know, infamously, if you criticize him on the internet, people will yell at you for days. Bezos doesn't quite have that level of fandom, but He's clearly, you know, he, I mean, he's one of the most successful capitalists in the world. He is a libertarian. That's what people around him have always said, you know, that he'll make statements about social responsibility and whatnot. And, you know, there's a quote from one of his sort of early investors who then left the company, who I won't say it since I don't know your rules about obscenities, but. Now go right ahead. Say it as it was. (laughs) I think he said something like, you've got to be fucking kidding me about Bezos saying that like he cared about other people or society, you know, sort of social welfare programs. Um, He said that guy's a libertarian. Um, And so I think, you know, on some level, what I find really interesting about Bezos, um, and I've said this on the show, is that he embodies capital in a way that I think a lot of people maybe on the left might say about bosses or capitalists, but really, you know, they they somewhat diverge. Bezos really is sort of capital embodied, right? He accepts no limits. I've joked about how we just had Prime Day that made up Amazon Holiday, which is in fact at this point 48 hours, not just one day. So immediately within a couple of years, Amazon started even avoiding and rerouting the limits it set for its own holiday, right? And so, I mean, we see this in Bezos's current obsession that he's, you know, finally sort of taking on centrally his desire to go to space, which of course other billionaires are similarly in that moment. But Bezos, you know, has always since he was a kid been interested in that. And while many teenagers, you know, think about going to space, Bezos famously, his girlfriend from high school said he actually only wanted to get rich so he could afford to go to space. That was really his goal. And so there's sense a sense of sort of, you know, capital embodied, right? Like without limits, colonizing everything, including, you know, other planets, right? And so I think that that is the best and most accurate way to think about Bezos. I mean, he has all sorts of libertarian ideas about value creation stemming from inventors and sort of, you know, geniuses like himself um, and his team around him. Um, There's a technocracy there. There's an expertise. He's interested in sort of what he would consider utopian sci-fi, what maybe his workforce and others would consider dystopian ideas. Um, And so there's this technocratic fix to any sort of social problems, right? And so I think those are all accurate ways to describe Bezos without getting into other things that we could say about, say, his personality. They're fascinating elements that actually are reflected in the way this company runs. The one thing that really freaked me out of recent times was Amazon Day. So this company now 
is creating its own secular holidays, its own secular culture, like a religion. This is the dream, right? That you're so big, you can actually just call your own holiday instead of, say, you know, Black Friday in the United States is a huge sale day. But Amazon, you know, noticed that the calendar had a lull in the summer season. And so it created Prime Day and then expanded it around the world. You know, some, I think, 20 countries or something engage in Prime Day now. We did too. I completely ignored it for all the obvious reasons. So it's a huge company. We know that. But is it now the largest private employer in the United States? Last look, it was tracking towards 1 million employees. Has it gone over that yet? Yeah, I think it's just over that now. But the numbers here get very fuzzy, right? And intentionally so. So I won't go into, we don't have to go too far into it. But Amazon really centrally focuses on what I would consider labor arbitrage or the evasion of, you know, the responsibilities one traditionally has to one's workforce by using third-party contractors. So many people who by all effective means or common sense definitions um, would be considered employees of Amazon are in fact employed by smaller other companies that then contract with Amazon. So it's hard to get a sense, right? So, I mean, we have thousands and thousands of delivery drivers in the United States who are driving in those dark blue Amazon vans who are, you know, being told down to what their fingernails need to look like. They're following Amazon's orders, right? The routes, the productivity, the quotas, and so on. And yet they're not Amazon employees. But even the ones who are direct employees, so the white collar workers, for example, the tech people, the warehouse workers obviously are the bulk of this. Those all add up to around a million people in the United States, which is still less than Walmart. And it's interesting that Walmart does not get the attention I think it used to get. So much attention is on Amazon. But of course, as you mentioned, the path is just up, up, up for Amazon. And so it is en route to become the largest private employer very soon. Yet it has a turnover around 3% of its so-called associates each week. That is enormous. So people are cycling in and out of work at Amazon at a huge rate. What the hell is going on? That's a great question. I actually, just before... I got on the line here with you. I was talking to a couple of Amazon warehouse workers about this turnover rate. Um, and they brought up this New York Times article that came out recently that was like a year-long investigation to a warehouse in Staten Island in New York. The warehouse is JFK 8. The reporters used that to get a sense of how Amazon's business model actually operates for workers. And yes, what they found was 150% turnover. So we're talking about every few months, the entire workforce has effectively been started anew, right? So of course, there are a couple of people who stick around for years. There are many people who leave within the first week. So overall, it's just a constant churn, right? And the reasons for that are manifold, but they mostly come down to what the working conditions are at an Amazon warehouse. So, you know, I think a lot of people maybe listening to this might be familiar with some of the horror stories, right? So I think a lot of media coverage comes to, for example, the idea that these warehouse workers are peeing in bottles. That was sort of the key, like, media story recently and also a few years back because a British journalist was the one who originally experienced that when he went undercover and worked in an Amazon warehouse and saw his coworkers do that. Um, So, you know, I think that's sort of sensationalized. It does exist. The real thing that most people are experiencing on the shop floor of a warehouse is definitely this this constant obsession over time. So Amazon calls this time off task, which is any time a worker spends not picking or sorting objects, moving goods from one part of the warehouse to the other. That's all time off task, which adds up. And, you know, if you have too much of it, your manager starts yelling at you. If you have even more of that, you get terminated, you get fired. So that is a big part of it, this feeling that you're constantly being tracked and surveilled. Um, That also leads people to feel very dehumanized. So this is a slogan that workers have raised when they're on strike, say, or having a walkout. 
that we are not robots. And I think a lot of people maybe don't quite understand how big of a sort of impact that has on a person, right? So we know about unsafe working conditions, which of course, Amazon warehouses also have, they have high injury rates and so on compared to other warehouses. But there is also this psychological effect that's going on where you just feel like you're being treated like a robot, you're not a person, you're being governed and surveilled by algorithms rather than people. And at the end of the day, that's just incredibly demoralizing. And so that's part of why people are leaving so quickly. There's also all sorts of, you know, sort of accidents of, you know, people being fired just because everything is governed by an algorithm. And then all of a sudden you've been fired and you can't even reach a human to explain what happened. So I think a lot of these jobs just sort of churn through people's health and mental well-being. Um, and that's why we see people come and go so much. And it does have real dystopian elements to it as well. I mean, hearing about people being tracked by heat maps so that they cannot congregate and speak to each other. So there's a, a feeling within the union movement that what Amazon is also trying to do is making sure that workers stay isolated so that they cannot organize. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly part of it, right? It's sort of two birds with one stone, I would say, for Amazon. You know, they sort of live the dream that I think a lot of bosses would like because they have so much money in technology that they really can implement these surveillance technologies in ways that other employers can't necessarily do. So the heat maps you're referring to totally are anti-union tools, right? So they're about tracking who is likely to organize, what the conditions on shop floors are that might lead certain workers to do that versus others. But also Amazon, because of COVID, has this plausible deniability of saying that this is actually about safety. Um, This is about social distancing. Though when you talk to workers, of course, they will say that you couldn't possibly social distance on the actual job. And it's actually the social spaces now that are the most governed on this. So the break rooms, of course, now are socially distanced. So there's only one chair at each table and everyone is sort of being watched and no one's talking and, and so on and so forth. And there are people that are employed on these warehouse floors just to keep people from speaking to one another. Um, so this is all very convenient. I mean, there is some truth to the fact that you know, the company does want people social distancing. Amazon certainly doesn't want everyone dying of COVID in their warehouses. But at the same time, this is, yes, absolutely taking what was already you know, a historically isolating job, you know, it's just unusually alienating. You're alone, you're moving objects, you're doing repetitive motions. It's too loud in there anyway to talk to anyone. And yet at the same time, now it's gotten even worse. One of the other elements is that they've tried to introduce this sort of wellness culture via menial attempts at making sure people are feeling okay. Can you tell us about that? Their little their little meditation breaks, they're offering their, their associates in their fulfillment centers, which already sounds cultish, Yeah, so it's very strange. So I think part of this is that, you know, Amazon did get obviously a lot of criticism because in part of the the union drive that was happening in Bessemer, Alabama recently. And that sort of got a hearing that hadn't previously been heard for sort of mainstream publications and the readerships that, wait a minute, these conditions are really bad. And so one way that the company has responded is, of course, not by, say, reducing the quotas and the productivity levels, giving people more flexibility or, you know, safer working conditions. But in fact, is this very strange and what what I referred to as dystopian, almost sci-fi technocratic fix, which, yes, is their wellness program. I think it's called Working Well. The thing that I think, you know, has gotten, the, got made fun of the most is a particular sub part of this program called Amazen, <laughs> um, which is... <laughs> it's so awful. It's so bad. I first saw this mentioned and thought it was someone who had, you know, was doing a parody. It sounds like an SNL sketch. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Like it was it. There's, it sounds like exactly like a bad comedy. 
But, you know, I went to their website and sure enough, the press release had been uploaded and mentioned Amazon. (laughs) You have to remember that like Amazon is spending so much money on PR teams. You know, they have some of the highest paid publicity people of any company, right? And this is what they're coming up with, which I think speaks to sort of this, the social isolation of the super rich and sort of executives of companies in their own way where they had no, I think they really someone at least were surprised that people didn't love this idea. Um, And so you have to wonder who they asked before they announced it. Sort of, I would say the thing that is craziest about the Amazon thing is these boxes. They're like telephone booths, or as I sort of thought when I first saw them, like porta potties that are being installed in these fulfillment centers. They're very small, Um, And you can step in there and you can watch soothing videos and meditative sounds. And, you know, you're like hearing dolphins playing and soothing white noise. And that's supposed to relax you. You know, if you're ever feeling overwhelmed and stressed on the shop floor, you can go lock yourself into a porta potty. (laughs) One I've seen had plants in there. You know, it's almost like it was meant to look like this cute little millennials apartment, but it was the size of a bathroom stall. And, And again, these warehouses, it's very hard to describe how big they are and just the sound, right? It's just machines. And so there's the idea that there's you can have a, a little meditative experience. You know, I've spoken to warehouse workers since that was rolled out who have, you know, they're incredibly dismissive. It, many of them, of course, are like making fun of this the way we are, um, but also they're insulted, right? Because what they've been asking for is very clear. They're working under unsafe conditions. They're being pushed beyond realms of human possibility with the quotas and the productivity measures and and they're being fired for not meeting them. And so to have this be rolled out, you know, is an insult, honestly. Um, And it also speaks to just how far anyone at the top of Amazon is to ever um, acceding to these demands without being forced to do so, right? This is what they come up with, not anything that actually helps anyone. Is Amazon a work culture where they expect you to drink the Kool-Aid? And uh, we spoke to Sarah Jaffe the other day about Work Won't Love You Back, her new book, where she talks about these big companies that expect you to be considered family in that same way that therefore you owe a familial allegiance to the company and to do what you're told and to be grateful for anything you get. Do they cultivate that sort of culture within the workforce? They definitely do. And I think this is something that people may not quite understand from the outside. Because again, I think at this point, the average person knows that these jobs are bad. That's sort of one of the things people know is that it's supposed to be bad to work in these warehouses. But in fact, for people in the warehouses, this is a massive cultural pressure to think of the company as family and as family that, you know, that is looking out for you, right? So the term, of course, is associate. You're not a worker. You're not an employee. You're an associate. And Amazon puts a lot of time and thought into creating internal hierarchies on the warehouse floor that would sort of build towards this identification with the company. So there's something called the ambassador program, which is like becoming a manager, but with no extra pay. What you get is, I am not joking, a different colored vest and you're sort of encouraged, right? You're encouraged like you're going to move up. And it is true that certain people who become ambassadors then do eventually maybe become management. Because the key thing that leads you to be recruited to become an ambassador is that you love the company, right? And so what you get when you become an ambassador is you sort of get managerial authority on some level over your coworkers, right? So people who work at Amazon will say, you know, I think the ambassadors are tracking my productivity. They certainly tell me to speed up and to stop, you know, taking a break. But I don't actually think they have firing power over me because they're just another coworker. But there is this sort of like internal hierarchy that is constantly being 
encouraged and developed by Amazon. There's also a very interesting article that actually just came out in Harper's Magazine about the vote in Bessemer, Alabama, and particularly what led workers to oppose the union. And I think that also is very telling in that, you know, the company did a very good job in its anti-union campaign of laying out these lines of division, that you are part of the family of Amazon and we are going to look out with you if you stick with us. Whereas the union, you know, I wish I was joking, but this is what was said in what are called captive audience meetings where the management speaks to workers about why they shouldn't unionize. They would say, you know, the union is a business. They're extracting dues from you um, and they're just out for profit. Again, this is one of the most profitable companies, you know, in the world um, that is very much extracting profits from its workforce. Um, and, you know, had very quickly taken away the hazard pay it had rolled out within a couple months of the pandemic that was gone. Um, and yet they're getting up in front of workers and saying that we are your family, not the union. Um, and so that totally is encouraged. I mean, it's also encouraged, we should mention, among the white collar workers at Amazon in a very different way. But similarly, you know, they are told that, you know, they should identify with the company and they should always be looking out for it. Let's talk about Bessemer because that was seen at the time as, as a test case. So this is a warehouse in Alabama with a, a workforce that was attempting to unionise. Now, for Australian listeners, this is a different process. In Australia, you can form a union, you become a union at your own will if you can organise workers in a workplace. And you might affiliate them with our organisation, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, and then join uh, the wider union family, like most unions do. But in the United States, it's a different process. You need to get a certain uh, number of workers within a particular workforce to sign on, and then it goes through a process of being ratified by a regulator of sorts. Explain that before we talk about why Bessemer failed. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's very complicated and convoluted because American labor law is this hodgepodge of certain things being won by workers and then being clawed back by the capitalist class, right? And so it's just a labyrinth of rules. But generally what happens here and what was done in Bessemer is called, the, you go through the National Labor Relations Board or the NLRB. So that's the government body that is overseeing a union election. And to do that, you have to file an election with the NLRB with 30% or more of the workforce having signed union authorization cards. So yes, you have to do the organizing before you file for an election and you need to meet that minimum requirement though of course you want to have the overwhelming majority of workers having already said yes i want a union before you file because then what happens is that an election date is set there are arguments had between the boss and the union about who is going to be in the bargaining unit so who's going to be in the union what the conditions of the election are going to be this was much more complicated during covid obviously um, because the election was actually a mail-in ballot instead of in person and then eventually, yes, a date is filed. And at that point, the bosses begin really intensifying their anti-union campaign. So they have a period of time to scare workers away from voting yes. Generally, what happens is you lose, you know, say 10 or 20 percent of your support is just ground away by the boss being able to access you in that way that I mentioned, the, the captive audience meetings. So while unions don't have the right to be on the company property, they don't, you know, they, it's very hard for them to contact workers. There are many rules governing the union's access to any workers. The boss, you know, has all the rights of access because you're on their property all day as a worker. And so that's how it works. And you have to win the majority of the votes, right? If that's if you go through at the NLRB. So that was what was attempted in Bessemer. Why did it fail? Uh, given that all of the things we've talked about would suggest that workers uh, are best served by joining a union and using their collective bargaining power to uh, force a company to provide better conditions, pay and job certainty. It didn't happen in Bessemer. Why? 
I mean, <laughs> that's a huge question, right? And um, there, I want to be clear that there are several factors. Um, so I wouldn't pretend to know the secret answer or something, right? Like I could do it better. But I mean, it's what I said, right? So it's the labor laws in the United States do tilt every step of that and fit of that process in favor of the boss. So for example, Amazon was able to argue that actually the unit that was filed was wrong. So instead of the 1500 estimated workers in the union, actually the number was closer to 6,000. So all of a sudden, you know, the union and the pro-union workers had to start organizing a whole bunch of new workers that they had never contacted before, right? So that's the fact that the boss has a say over who's in your union and who's out. That's a big part of it. Another part of it was the anti-union campaign. So, you know, Amazon spent millions of dollars having the best paid consultants from law firms come in and direct their management on the warehouse floor over how to scare workers into voting no. And that was very effective. I think, you know, workers were basically convinced that the warehouse would shut down if they unionized. They were convinced that they would be personally retaliated against. Um, Some workers felt that they were being surveilled, that the boss would know how they voted um, and then retaliate against them for that. It doesn't have to be true for a worker to think it's true. Um, And, you know, in in the case of Bessemer, it, it may well have been true that Amazon could know something like that. Um, But there's also, I think, more, you know, harder to pin down societal forces, which are why U.S. workers so frequently vote against unionizing. You know, I think the part of an organizer and a socialist is to be able to convince people to unionize. But in the U.S., that's very hard, right? I mean, there's very little evidence when you look around you as a young person in the United States that workers can collectively better the conditions on the job or in society, right? You say you're a person my age, you know, in your 20s. You've worked at McDonald's. You've worked for non-union jobs. You've never seen working class people come together and win anything, right? It's very hard to believe that you could possibly win against Amazon of all people, right? And so I think this sense of, you know, people having trouble believing in the possibility that they do have power is actually a big part of the story. And when you have a company like Amazon, meanwhile, spending millions of dollars and, and sending you a dozen texts a day saying, no, you don't, you don't have power stick with us and that's the only power you have, that is a very strong argument um, that can convince people to vote no. And so, you know, I think I often say that the, the real miracle in the United States is that people ever vote yes for a union. And it can be done. It's done regularly. I'm not saying it's impossible or something like that. It's always been very hard, not just in the US, but everywhere. But in a situation like this election in particular, it was always going to be an immensely uphill battle. And so, I mean, like you said, this was sort of the first shot across the bow, right? And so at least in that sense, we've tried. Um, and so I think a lot of workers across warehouses and a lot of people in unions are sort of metabolizing the lessons learned and moving forward. Well, exactly, because there's another campaign going on and it's being done differently at JFKA. Tell us about Chris Smalls and his very grassroots campaign to try to unionize that huge warehouse in New York Yeah. So Chris, um, for people who don't know, is someone who was fired from Amazon just over a year ago, right when the pandemic was starting. He was working at JFKA. He had worked for Amazon for, I think, almost five years. Um, And he started raising concerns about the lack of COVID precautions in the warehouse. So Amazon really did not do a great job, um, especially early in the pandemic. They were not, did not have a, mean of commun- a means of communication for telling workers when there were cases in the warehouses. Of course, this was New York. I was living there at the time. The whole city was being consumed with COVID. Um, and so walking into a giant warehouse and not knowing who's sick and who's not and not hearing a word from Amazon obviously made people very concerned. 
So Chris was involved in helping and starting to organize rallies about this and sort of raise attention and and get his coworkers on board with maybe doing something about this. Um, Amazon fired him and sort of started this very vicious smear campaign against him. Um, and ever since he's been sort of, he's become this activist, right? This organizer. And so a few months ago, he started trying to organize JFK as well as adjacent warehouses in Staten Island. Um, and he's doing it with a few coworkers at Amazon. They're doing an independent labor union. I think it's it's useful as a way of looking at the spectrum of how these efforts are happening. You know, Chris is facing an immensely uphill battle, just like people were in Bessemer and possibly even more because he doesn't have the resources or the infrastructure of sort of an existing union. Um, and I mentioned that I was speaking to other Amazon workers today. They were from an organization called Amazonians United, which is similarly in the U.S. what's called a solidarity union or a minority union. You know, so not an organization that is like in Bessemer trying to you know file for an election with the NLRB, but rather it's just workers on the shop floor in organizing committees, sort of picking fights and trying to win them without necessarily, you know, winning legal union recognition the way that often is done in the United States. Um, So there are a range of efforts. I think also worth mentioning if we're talking about this is that the Teamsters just passed a resolution at their convention that creates an Amazon division. Um, So they are going to pour quite a bit of resources and infrastructure um, of a still very sizable, powerful union into organizing Amazon workers. And again, their their thinking on this is that, you know, Amazon is an existential threat to their members, to drivers. It, you know, Amazon brings down the working conditions even for union workers. So in that sense, you know, even a union that might not necessarily be like radical or interested in organizing all workers, it can see the writing on the wall and Amazon is, you know, making things worse for everyone. Just to finish, Joe Biden stood up a couple of months ago and uh proudly and publicly said that he supports good union jobs, which is something that uh, we never thought we'd hear out of the mouth of an American president. Is that changing the dynamic for people who want unions in their lives in the United States? And and does that signal a, a turn of events that might see these places unionised? Or will we see the opposite happen? And we've seen this too, where these big companies then just go offshore to the global south, as it's called, uh, to uh, high-density populations, low-wage environments, and just take their business model offshore? Well, I mean, for better or worse, unfortunately, I don't think the words of Joe Biden are really what's stopping people from winning a union. So, you know, we saw Joe Biden released a video specifically targeted at the Bessemer election saying that, you know, he doesn't abide by interference in a union election. You know, he didn't say Amazon's name, but he was talking about supporting the workers in Alabama it didn't change anything, right? It might have won a few people to vote yes who would have voted no, but the result was the result, right? This was not the game changer. And so there are many factors, particularly at the level of laws that are stopping people from winning unions. And, you know, I think there is some truth to the fact that the Biden administration might, you know, they're passing certain executive orders that are making things a little easier for workers, at least some workers. They're sort of trying to open up some leverage for workers. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think there is no way around the fact that what it's going to take to win a union is a, is a little bit different than sort of Biden saying he's pro-union. That said, you know, there are efforts that are actually moving. For example, the PRO Act is this very ambitious labor law reform in the United States. And the fact that Biden is not opposing it and is, in fact, at least rhetorically supporting it does totally help. But again, to get things across the finish line, there's really not a shortcut one can take. The U.S. working class is immensely disorganized and the process of reorganizing ourselves is is going to take a lot of effort and possibly, you know, it can't be sort of engineered, right? 
I mean, in times of crisis, that often is where we see transformation. And for better or worse, we are currently you know, coming out of a serious crisis. So I think in that sense, there are possibilities for sure. But I don't think that companies, you know, Amazon, for instance, is not, it could not possibly move its warehouses offshore or something like that. It needs to be close to its markets, right? And in fact, it is spending immense resources expanding into places like the New York metro area as its customers get higher and higher expectations of getting deliveries within literally an hour. So Amazon has no way of not being where its customers are. So in that sense, there is some power there for workers. Alex, it's been so great to talk to you. Remind people what your podcast is and and, uh, how you go about it. You you put out an episode every week dealing with these issues and keeping a really uh, great uh, overview of what's going on within this company and what it's happening for its workers. Yeah. So the show is called Primer. It's put out by my employer, Jacobin Magazine, um, where I'm a staff writer. I write about labor and often about Amazon. You can find it by looking anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you search Jacobin Radio, which is sort of the suite of Jacobin's podcasts, you can also find it by going to patreon.com backslash Primer Pod. We're also on Twitter at Primer Pod. And so, yeah, that's where people can find the show. And like you said, We're trying to make this an entry point for a a topic that I think a lot of people find very overwhelming to keep up with. Alex, thanks for being on The Job. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Alex Press, the host of Primer, with us here on The Job, talking about the Amazon universe. That is that dystopian universe that we were talking about before with billionaires flying off into space, Sally. Yeah, I may have said this on the pod before, but it's just you look at someone like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, I can't help but look at them and think like, man, every single day these people wake up and decide to not end world hunger. They're like, hmm, nah, I'll, like, I'm going to build a rocket. You know, the phrase is that every billionaire is a policy failure, and that's correct, but also they're not just policy failures, right? They're people who wake up and make decisions every day as human beings as well. Which yeah. is really, it's interesting position to be in, isn't it? I've always thought that extraordinary wealth, while it you know, affords you the opportunity to do whatever you want, would come with enormous pressure, and I think it would be a burden that I don't think I necessarily want because of that. But it also, it does raise the bar for you in terms of what are you going to do to contribute to the well-being of others and some of them do like you know gates for all these problems and these issues and we know there are has had a meaningful and sustained engagement with trying to change things in significant areas like malaria and polio and and other areas like that so you know he gets a bit of a pass for that and there are so many others that could and don't and in australia i think it's even worse you know we, we have uh, maybe people that don't have the same uh, extraordinary wealth as the Bezoses of the world, but do have extreme wealth. Um, and I'm wondering whether they also need to think more closely about making that sort of contribution. But it's really the structural stuff that allows people to amass that sort of wealth and to continue to consolidate it as they, as, as Amazon does with Bezos. His wealth grows exponentially. Uh, and the, the way that it end, this, like I said, I call it end times capitalism uh, and a late, late stage capitalism is allowing this to happen where does it end what's what's the tipping point oh god well maybe that's a cliffhanger for next week <laughs> <laughs> tune in to the next episode of on the show as we end capitalism then, yeah exactly <laughs> see you next week and we'll give you all the answers <laughs> been, all of them we've been waiting to drop them on the pod <laughs> 
Fair enough. Good on you, Sally. <laughs> Enjoy your week coming up with that <laughs> list of answers. <laughs> Thanks, mate. I'm going to um, head out to the garden now and start. The cat bomb shelter. <laughs> it's fun. not a bomb shelter. It's going to be a really tasteful cat run. A cat cat run. Okay. I say bomb shelter, you say run. Okay. <laughs> I want photos. <laughs> Please. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll be coming. I'll tweet them once I'm done. Exactly. Have a great week. Say hi to the cats for me. <laughs> Bye. You can follow Sally on your socials uh, at Sally Rugg. Don't forget, rate us. We rate ourselves, so rate us on, on your platform. Give us a review. It helps other people find the pod. And uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of On The Job. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye for now.